Um, my name is Greg. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church, and as I said, it's really good to see all of you. And for those of you who are visiting for the first time, I want to give a special uh, holler out to you. Good, glad that you're here. We uh, here at Woodland Hills Church just um, do, we worship God together, do a couple announcements, and then we do a Bible study. So we're going to our Bible study here. We're in the book of Luke, which if you've been here for within the last six years, you knew that already. And we're up to chapter 17, looking at two very, very important foundational verses here this morning. And I want to entitle this message, The Kingdom is Here and Now. The kingdom is here and now. It's always here and now. And thank you, Trevor, for those very, very cool graphics. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 uh, through 21. Luke says, Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. This is absolutely foundational, uh, and so I want to pray that God will just be working in our hearts and minds to receive this word. So Father, we ask you, Abba Father, in your love, to cultivate the soil of our hearts and minds, to receive your word in all of its uh, edginess and boldness, and uh, God, to confront whatever in our life needs to be confronted, maybe expose things that need to be exposed. We don't come to get our ears tickled, uh, but rather to really be challenged by your word so that we can be more faithful in living out your kingdom. So God, use this word. But Holy Spirit, I'm just so aware that uh, human words can't do a thing, can't do a thing, cannot do a thing in their own power to change lives. And so Holy Spirit, will you take these words and empower them to build your kingdom in our hearts and minds and, and drive out assumptions and presuppositions and conceptions that maybe we've held on to without even knowing it that resist or run counter to your kingdom. Let it be done, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom come? It was on their minds. It was on almost everyone's minds in the first century, as it is on many people's minds today. When is the kingdom coming? And Jesus responds by saying, well, there's something wrong with your question. The kingdom isn't something that can be observed. Now this phrase, something that can be observed in Greek is meta petiteresios. Meta means with or by. Peritoresios means an observation or an observable thing. And so what Jesus is literally saying here is that the kingdom doesn't come by or with anything that is observable or with an observation. Now, this is one of those kind of passages where it really helps to know a little bit about what was going on in the culture to understand what's behind this passage. We know that in the first century, a lot of people thought, a lot of people thought that the kingdom of God could be brought about by observable things. So you had, for example, the Pharisees, who they, they believed that the kingdom could be brought about or at least helped uh, by engaging in observable uh, religious behavior. 
and by enforcing observable laws. And they believed that if uh, they could just get enough uh, uh, Jewish people to be law-abiding citizens, if they could just fix the bad, sinful behavior of the, the Jewish masses, well, then God would honor that and would come down and bring his kingdom, which to them meant liberate Israel from its Roman oppression, vanquish uh, the Romans, uh, reestablish Israel as a sovereign state, and ultimately rule the world with Israel on top. That's their, that was their sort of politicized, nationalized idea of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom could be brought about by observable things. Now, there was others who had a different perspective. Folks like the Zealots, they believed that the kingdom would be brought about if, if only we could get enough Jews to have enough faith in God to, and enough courage to grab hold of their swords and come up against the Romans. And that even though the, the, the Jews were you know, really a much smaller number than the Romans and had you know, no, no comparable power at all, that God would intervene and honor their faithfulness and give them the victory. And that's how Israel would be liberated and, uh, and the Romans would be vanquished and the kingdom of God would come. So the Pharisees had observable laws. Uh, the zealots had observable violence. And there's another group of people that didn't really focus on activities, but they focused on signs. They didn't think that, that the kingdom could, could be brought about by observable activities, but they thought it would be accompanied with observable signs. And so these were the sign of the times watchers of the first century. And they would look at try to interpret historical movements and uprising and events and sometimes astronomical phenomena like, like comets in the sky. And they're always asking the question, what does this mean? Is this a sign that the, that the Messiah is going to come and the kingdom of God is coming? And I'll say more about that third group next week. I want to focus on the first two groups this week. But the background of the question shows that the general assumption was that the kingdom is still in the future. The general assumption was that the kingdom could be brought about by engaging in observable activities like enforcing righteous laws or engaging in quote-unquote righteous violence. Uh, they all assumed that the kingdom of God was here and not there. They were sure that it was going to be associated with Israel and no other nation. And what the Pharisees are really trying to do here in this passage is ask Jesus, what's your opinion about all this? Weigh in on this issue. And they're probably asking him not because they sincerely are curious, but because they want to entrap him. Uh, because this, like so many other issues that they were uh, trying to get Jesus to, to weigh in on, uh, was a very divisive issue. Uh, and, and so however he would answer it, he, he could end up dividing the crowd that was following him. But as Jesus so often does, he responds in a way that undercuts the assumption behind the question. This is what he was always doing. He was a genius at this. And so Jesus says... He responds by saying, well, you guys, your, your assumption that the kingdom of God can be brought about by things that are observable to the natural eye, and your assumption that the kingdom can be identified with a particular location, it's all here and not there, they're both mistaken. Because as a matter of fact, the kingdom is already in your midst. The kingdom is already here. What he's mostly referring to there, folks, is, is himself. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. He, he, he is the embodiment of Yahweh. And so he embodied the dome over which God reigns. That is the kingdom of God. He was the domain of God's reign. 
he perfectly manifests what it looks like when God completely reigns in a human life. He is the, 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 the full manifestation, the walking, talking manifestation, incarnation, and embodiment of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom always looks like him. And so what he's saying to them is this, folks, the, the kingdom isn't something that's future. It's right in front of you. My name is Jesus. The kingdom, it's not going to be brought about by passing more righteous laws or by engaging in some righteous violence. And it can't be identified with Israel more than any other nation. It's not something that's over here or over there. Rather, the kingdom is right here under your noses. My name is Jesus. It's right in front of you. It's in your midst. And see, people who had open hearts and had minds that weren't already polluted with their own ideologies and theologies, whatever, they could see the kingdom in Jesus. They saw the kingdom in his healings and in his exorcisms and in the radical life of love that he lived. But the Pharisees couldn't see that. And a lot of people couldn't see it. In fact, they were scandalized by by Jesus' untraditional behavior. The kingdom isn't something that is observable to the natural eye. It's not like a law or a nation or violence that everyone can see. Rather, the kingdom can only be seen by those who have eyes to see. And the Pharisees didn't have those eyes. The zealots didn't have those eyes, which is why they kept on looking for the kingdom in the future. Which is why they kept on trying to bring about the kingdom by passing more of their righteous laws or engaging in their so-called righteous violence. That's why they kept on thinking that the kingdom was more in Israel than any other place. Because they, they didn't have the eyes to see the kingdom that was right in front of them. But in fact, Jesus was right there all along. Now the application of this uh, passage to us today, I think, is as obvious as it is important. In fact, I think it's absolutely foundational uh, to what the kingdom is all about, especially foundational to us in this culture. It's a theme that, that we address with some frequency here at Woodland Hills Church, though we always want to avoid being a, a one-fiddle sort of you know, message here. But it's a, it's a theme that we hit on with some frequency. And so for those who are, have been listening uh, or attending here for some time, uh, this will probably be a, a review lesson. But this is so foundational, and it's so counter to the way that our culture thinks, and especially counter to the way many Christians are taught to think, that I think it always bears repeating. And so listen up with this. The passage is showing that the assumption that the kingdom of God can be brought about or at least helped with laws or violence is mistaken. But what's important to us to see is that this assumption, the assumption that the kingdom of God can be brought about or at least helped uh, by passing observable laws and enforcing observable laws or even engaging in observable violence, and the assumption that the kingdom can be more identified with one nation rather than another It permeates our culture, and it has from the start, and it especially permeates the church. It's really been a staple of American Christianity, at least a large portion of American Christianity, almost from the beginning of American history. From the start, many have assumed that we're helping bring about the kingdom of God by fighting to pass righteous uh, laws to fix people's sinful behavior. And from the start, many have assumed that we're helping bring about the kingdom of God Uh, by fixing the world, by supporting America's military expeditions. Now, the founding fathers, it's interesting to note, never talked this way. But preachers, almost from the start, have. 
You can find a, a steady strand of this theme going back to the beginning. It's rooted in Puritanism and it, it carries over to this day. From the start, a lot of preachers, not all, there are some who from the start were very much against this way of, of thinking and speaking, but it was a dominant motif that America was, was, was viewed as the, the new Israel. They used that language. It was uh, called a righteous nation. We are a holy city set on a hill. Uh, we are the hope of the world. We are the light of the world. Using that kind of rhetoric almost from the start. And, and that's carried on to this day. And a lot of churches are steeped in it. Uh, it's reflected, as I've shared before, in a slogan like, uh, which is not quite as popular now as it used to be, but the idea that we're going to take America back for God. And we, we do that by passing righteous, observable laws and, and other things like that. We're going to take America back for God, which of course presupposes that once upon a time we were a, a nation that was uniquely for God. This holy nation, this righteous nation, this new Israel. In fact, some of the early preachers took all the promises that applied to Israel and applied them to America. Uh, there's no justification for that, but that's just what they did. But this, this slogan assumes that we were this righteous nation, and if we just could pass some more righteous laws and curb other people's sinful behavior, we're never as interested in curbing our own sinful behavior, but if we could just do that, well, then we'd be a nation, we'd be that Christian nation again, that Christ-like nation again, and a nation set on a hill. And um, as I've wondered out loud here in the pulpit a number of times, I uh, never have been able to figure out when this golden age of American Christianity was. I've never been able to locate the time in America where the nation actually looked Christ-like, which is what the word Christian means. Uh, it was that before or after we imported millions of African slaves? Was it before or after we slaughtered millions of Native Americans and broke treaties with them over the next two centuries, even up in the 20th century? I don't know when this golden age was, but the myth goes on. It is the myth of a Christian nation. And it's not just in the church. It's always been to the advantage of politicians to use this rhetoric to get the Christian vote or to get the Christians on board to support the wars. And so the politicians have always used this kind of rhetoric. It's to their advantage. And Christians, more than not, have always believed them. But no, it even comes out in secular ways. Uh, a well-known politician in a rather recent message uh, referred to America as, quote, the last best hope of the world, unquote. And the stadium broke out in applause. And maybe that's just normal, uh, you know, political rhetoric. But what's interesting is that I bet in, in the, the stadium that broke out in applause, I, I'm guessing that there's probably several million uh, true blue Christians who were caught up in that and, and clapped. Yes, America, the last best hope of the world. Without noticing that what just happened was he just applied to America an attribute that really belongs to Jesus Christ. Because, folks, America is not the last best hope of the world. It's like referring to America as the light of the world. Well, you know, that, that, that's Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. And, and uh, when, when, when we start putting America in the place of Jesus, the Christians at least ought to stop applauding. And say, okay, wait, 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 you're going a little far there, all right? I, I'm all for patriotism, but let, let's keep Jesus, Jesus, and America, America. But see, we're so used to this mindset, we don't even notice when the politicians and sometimes the preachers put America where Jesus is supposed to be, as the hope of the world. We see, that mindset explains, if we understand it, why throughout American history, uh, there's, there's always been a strong strand of the Christian church that has been very passionate about politics, whether on the right or on the left. And there's always been a tendency on the part of many churches to have a strong support for the military. In fact, inside and outside the church, 
more so today than I think in the past, people have often assumed that supporting particular political positions and supporting the military, America's military, is part of what it means to be Christian. This is just what Christians do. This is what they're identified with. Which, incidentally, is why some people get rather irate when a preacher comes along and says, holding particular political positions and uh, supporting the military has got nothing to do with your Christianity or even what your views are about America has got nothing to do with the kingdom. Uh, They're two very different things. And see, if you've been conditioned by this traditional mindset that has reigned in America very strongly, well, then what you hear is a preacher going AWOL. Uh, he's, He's disavowing the faith. Part of what it means to be a Christian in America is to stand up for the righteous laws and to support the righteous military. This passage, if it means anything, is a direct contradiction to that whole stream I just talked about. It is in the face of that. It, it, it's diametrically opposed to this uh, traditional mindset because what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom isn't the kind of thing that can be brought about or even helped with observable things like laws and like politics, like wars. It's not the kind of thing that can be identified with one nation more than a different nation. It's not over here, but not over there. And Jesus' note is saying that about Israel. And if ever there was a nation that had justification for thinking it was an exceptional nation, it was Israel. But even in the first century, Jesus says, no, they're two separate things. The kingdom of God can't be identified with Israel uh, more than any other particular nation. And that was scandalous to the Jews of the time. Even probably more scandalous than it is for a preacher to say the kingdom can't be identified with America here in America. Though it scandalizes some people plenty. And what this means, folks, is this. It means we can have our opinions about laws and policies and candidates and wars and what's best for our society, what's worse. That's fine. You can have your opinions about what wars, if any, America should or shouldn't be involved with. That's fine. And for the purposes of this message, I'm willing to christen, christen every opinion that is in this auditorium or listening through podcasts. All those opinions I deem. Hereby, the pontificate says, you are all brilliant, you are all insightful, you are all righteous, you are all correct. (laughs) Though it's a little bit of a paradox because you probably all disagree with one another, but you're all brilliant. But see, in the light of this passage, we have got to lock this in. Our opinions about politics and about laws and about nationalism and about wars or anything else that's observable to the natural eye, as right as they are, has got nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Because Jesus embodies the kingdom of God, and Jesus never showed the slightest interest in things like laws and politics and nationalism and wars as a means of bringing about the kingdom of God. Because the truth is the kingdom of God can't be brought about by things like laws and politics and nationalism and wars. The kingdom is Jesus Christ. It always looks like Jesus Christ. And wherever people surrender to them, he is right there in their midst. The kingdom is always right here and right now, wherever there are two or three that are surrendered to him in his name. The kingdom is in our midst because Jesus is in our midst right here and right now. He's not in this policy or that policy or this political agenda or that political agenda. He's not more in this nation rather than that nation. He's not more in America than he is in China. And he's not more in Israel than he is in Palestine. 
He's wherever people are surrendered to him. He's in our midst right here and right now. And by the way, the last best hope of the world isn't found in any set of laws or any political party or any nations or the conquest of any military. The hope, the last best hope of the world is the same hope we've always had, and that's in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the ruler of history. Amen. So it really comes down to this. You know, you, you, can, you can despise or love Obama's politics. I really don't care. But either way, lock this in. The world is not closer to the kingdom of God because he's in office, nor would it be closer to the kingdom of God if he was out of office. You're comparing apples and oranges. And you may love or despise his, his economic stimulus plan. You maybe think it's the most brilliant thing in the world. It's going to finally save our country from economic ruin. Or maybe you think this is the first step towards socialism that's going to do our country in. I don't care. Either way, either way. Uh, the world's not going to be closer to the kingdom of God if this gets passed, nor will it be farther from the kingdom of God, uh, or nor will it be closer to the kingdom of God if it doesn't get passed. Uh, the economy might be better or worse. Let's find out. But see, the kingdom of God is not something that can be identified with something observable like an economic stimulus plan. And you may think America's military expeditions in Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of the world are, are noble, necessary, and good. Or maybe you think that it's the epitome of foolish empire arrogance. I don't care. But lock this in. Either way, the world's not closer to the kingdom because America's in those wars. And it wouldn't be closer if America wasn't in those wars. Because the kingdom of God isn't something that can be brought about or hindered by anything observable to the natural eye. It's not a kingdom that can be brought about by people with superior morality and superior insights, so they assume trying to fix other people's sins by passing righteous laws or engaging in righteous violence. It's not a kingdom that can be identified more with America than any other nation. It's a kingdom that is not of this world. It's got nothing to do with the politics and the laws and the nationalism or the wars. Which brings us to really the really important point. Let's get a little bit more concrete here. What does it mean to us? Here's the thing. Our central call, and really this is everything that the kingdom is about, it's, it's to be Jesus to the world. We are to be the body of Christ. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We're to be the body of Christ, which means we're to, in the power of God, as Jesus comes and lives out a life through us, we're to look like him. He's taken us over. We're to be the body of Christ, which means we do exactly what he did in his first incarnate body. And since Jesus is the kingdom, what that means, if you do the math, is that we're called to be the kingdom to everybody. The dome over which God reigns. To imitate Jesus is to now manifest the kingdom to the people that are in our midst. And therefore make the kingdom in their midst. And this is to be the defining passion of our life. It's the only thing that we rally around. We're to seek first the kingdom of God. Not last week, but, uh, th- and not this week. But rather, we're to seek first the kingdom of God every week, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 60 minutes every hour. It's to be the all-consuming passion of our life. It's the only thing that matters. So what defines us moment by moment to be a follower of Jesus. Which means that whatever opinions we might hold, our focus, our focus and attention can't be on Laws, politics, nations, and wars. Even though, of course, our opinions are all right. Our focus has got to be 24-7 on being Jesus to whoever is in our midst. 
And you can't do both at the same time. Your focus, if it's on the laws and the politics and nations and policies, it's going to be off of being Jesus to whoever's in your midst. And whatever opinions we hold, our focus can't be on trying to fix people's behavior with superior laws or fixing the world by supporting military operations. Our focus has got to be on being Jesus to whoever is in our midst. And whatever opinions we hold, our focus can't be on what's going on over here or over there in our nation or some nation. Our focus has always got to be on who's right in front of us, right here and right now, because our call is to be the kingdom to them. Whoever we're in the midst of, we're to bring the kingdom in the midst of them. That is our most fundamental calling, right here and right now. Because the kingdom is always right here and right now. Not found in some set of laws or some theoretical abstractions. We sometimes like it to be about that because that doesn't cost us anything. And opinions are really cheap. And we all like to have our opinions. But the kingdom's always concrete. It's always immediate. It's always right here and right now. In this moment with that person or this person. It's not over here or over there. It's right here. Whatever our opinions are about what Caesar should do to make it a little even more concrete. Whatever opinions you have about what Caesar should do, and I'm sure they're right, what Caesar should do about, let's say, civil unions. From a kingdom perspective, your opinion isn't that important. Everyone's got opinions. From a kingdom perspective, what's important is this. Are we being Jesus to our gay neighbors? Are we loving them and serving them and sacrificing for them, non-judgmentally befriending them? Are, are we being the kingdom in the midst of our gay neighbors? That's the important kingdom question. And whatever your opinions are about what Caesar should do to... I'm sure they're right. I'm sure your opinions are right. But what Caesar should do about the poor, uh, that's not the important kingdom question. That's just an opinion, and everyone's got an opinion. The important kingdom question is this. Uh, Are we being Jesus to the poor in our midst? Are we being Jesus to the poor in our cities and in our neighborhoods? Are we manifesting the kingdom to them? Are we loving them, serving them, sacrificing for them? Everyone's got an opinion. The question is, who's going to make a difference by how they live? That's our call. The kingdom is always right here and right now. Whatever your opinions are about what Caesar should do, I'm sure they're right to address abortion. From a kingdom perspective, the important question is this. Everyone's got an opinion. But from the kingdom perspective, the question is this. Are we being Jesus to the women in our midst who have an unwanted pregnancy? And are we being Jesus to their unborn children? Are we loving them and serving them and sacrificing for, uh, for them uh, to make it feasible for a woman to go full term? Because anyone can have an opinion and shout you shouldn't do that. But will someone pay the price to actually begin to make it feasible? Are we being Jesus to the women in our midst with unwanted pregnancies? Whatever your opinions might be about what wars, if any, America should be involved in, and I'm sure yours are absolutely correct, that's not the important kingdom question. The important kingdom question is is this. The all-important question is, are we being Jesus to our enemies? Uh, What Caesar does, Caesar does. Are we being Jesus to our enemies? Are we loving and serving and sacrificing for and blessing those people who talk bad about us, who maybe want to do us in, the people who spread bad rumors about us, gossip about us, the people who maybe make our life miserable at the office, uh, whatever they are, whoever they are, for whatever reasons they're mad at you or don't, don't like you or whatever, are we being Jesus to them? Are we refusing to hate them and rather praying for them and blessing them as Jesus commands us to and, and, and coming under them? Are we being Jesus to the enemies in our midst? And are we following Jesus' example? 
and how, what our attitude is towards our national enemies. Are we, are, are we refusing to hate them? Are we following the example of Jesus who on the cross prayed for his enemies this way, Father, forgive them? Are we doing that? Are we refusing to retaliate and rather praying, praying, praying blessing on them? That's the important kingdom question. What opinions do you have about what Caesar should do, about any issue? Well, that's neither here nor there. Everyone has an opinion, and everyone is right. The distinct kingdom thing is, what are we doing to the pe- with the people in our midst? The kingdom is not over here or over there in this observable law or that observable policy or this observable nation or that observable war. It's always right here, right now, to the people that are in front of us. Instead of, so instead of focusing on our superior, obviously superior opinions about what Caesar should do, our focus has always got to be on what God calls us to do right here, right now, with regard to these people. Are we being Jesus to our families? So many, people, so many people have undoubtedly correct, superior, moral ideas about Caesar's laws. Wonderful. But they can treat their spouses like they were pets and, and treat their children as though they didn't have unsurpassable worth. But see, the kingdom is not in the laws or your opinions. The kingdom is, is in, are you being Christ-like to your spouse, your husband, your wife? Are you being kingdom? Are you being Christ-like, sacrificial, loving servant to your children and to your brothers and sisters? Are you being Jesus to the elderly lady down the block who doesn't have anyone to visit her, but she really could use somebody to take her to the grocery store once a month? Are we being kingdom to the forgotten murderers locked up in prison? Are we being Jesus to the mentally challenged guy in the apartment complex or the unwanted child who's locked in a foster care system who really could use a mom or a dad or both who really loves them? Everyone has their opinions, but will we be the kingdom to the people in our midst? Will we be the kingdom to the brother or sister maybe in our family who... Maybe for legitimate reasons, no one talks to anymore. Has really burned all the bridges. Everyone despises them. They never show up at Thanksgiving or Christmas or any time. Are we being kingdom towards them, at least trying to reach out and bring about some kind of reconciliation? What about the Muslim lady? Are we being Jesus to the Muslim lady that no one else really notices in the grocery store, but she's got three kids and she's having a whole lot of trouble carrying those groceries out, and, 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 and will somebody notice her and lend a helping hand? That is kingdom. The kingdom is always right here and right now. Are we being Jesus to that really unfriendly neighbor that no one on the block likes, but her dog just died and that was her only friend and she could really use a comforting ear and a friend right now? Will we be Jesus to her or him? Or how about the person, the obnoxious, maybe even obscene person who cuts in front of you in line in the airport? Where Are we going to just do the typical world thing and retaliate against them, at least in our mind? calling them you fool or whatever in our mind, or will we be the kingdom and pray blessing over them? Uh, are we being Jesus to the, the gang kids in the inner city schools who could really use some help uh, in, in their reading skills? Maybe someone to volunteer once a week in the inner city schools. Or, or are we being Jesus to the depressed person in the congregation who could really just use an ear to talk to? Or the sick person who could really use someone to make a meal uh, for them? Or the couple in the gathering area after church who are kind of just... Um, moseying around, not acting like they know anybody because they're waiting for somebody to come up and welcome them. See, the kingdom is always right here and right now if we surrender to the king right here and right now. That makes it a kingdom moment and we bring the kingdom in the midst of people and that is our only job. That defines everything that we're, we're to be about, bringing the kingdom in the midst of people. It's not observable to the natural eye. It's not brought about by 
laws and policies and politics and nations and military. In fact, the kingdom is a mustard seed kingdom. It's always small, inconspicuous, humble-looking, easy to overlook. doesn't seem very important in the eyes of the world. That's why our, our, the carnal part of us likes the big splash, the big difference, the laws and the policies and the bombs and the wars and the nations. The kingdom is always small, humble, insignificant, unnoticed by the natural eye. But it always looks like Jesus. Always looks like Jesus. It's always got that humble servant quality to it. And the last word I'll say about it is simply this. Uh, Folks, whatever politicians may tell you, believe it or not, this is the last best hope of the world. This This is it. It doesn't make any sense. How utterly foolish and impractical to think that you're helping the Muslim lady in the grocery store makes a difference. I'm telling you, those little seeds that we sow have ramifications throughout the world. The hope of the world isn't in any set of laws, any political program, any national agenda, any military expedition. Uh, In fact, I would argue that all attempts to fix the world by our laws and politics and nationalism and and military expeditions have in the long run only served to further break the world. The hope of the world is found in humble people bringing the kingdom in the midst of people. Simply being the kingdom in the midst of people in little servant ways and thereby pointing people to the king of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ who is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords Uh, the ruler of the nations, and the savior of the world. And that's how the mustard seed grows. Now, what we're doing here on the weekends is is, uh, a seminar. This is a little seminar you just attended. We have a few assignments we'd like you to look into. You can pick those up on the way out. One of them is simply to talk to family or friends, small group, whatever, about what are some opportunities right in front of you that you have to bring the kingdom in the midst of people. We so often overlook this. Uh, it means that we, we start paying attention to the little things all around us every day. And, and so there's a little assignment that will help you begin to apply uh, what's talked about on the weekends to your day-to-day lives. Because if that doesn't happen, this is a marvelous waste of time. And so take those, I encourage you to take those and apply them and, and discuss them and, and pray about them. With the prayer team, come up. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come up and pray with these folks. If you want to surrender your life to the king this morning, come up and surrender it, and these folks will help you with that. Otherwise, I want to end with this uh, prayer. Uh, Father, help us to wake up from our slumber, our dreamy-like trust in things that are observable. Wake up, help us wake up to the ways that maybe we've been carnal-minded without know it, knowing it. And rather, God, to just live life with an acute awareness of the millions of little opportunities we have around us every day to bring the kingdom in the midst of people, to be the kingdom in the midst of people. Help us submit to you on a moment-by-moment basis and manifest your character to all people at all times. No ifs, ands, or buts. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.